Well, hey guys, welcome to Downtown Harbor Church. If it's your first time here, my name is John. I'm the lead pastor. Appreciate you guys checking us out and give us an hour of your time. It was amazing watching that video. I mean, all week long, just glued to the television, watching these stories. It's incredible. And I noticed for the first time that Maya was holding her dog in that video, which is great. Anybody who, I'm so glad the dog made it through. Anybody who, you know, tries to save their dog, they're a hero in my book, all right? I would die for my dog, literally. Wife, I don't know, but dog for sure. Don't tell her I said that. No, she's watching, maybe. Anyway, um, I'm kidding. Not really. Um, so we are, if it's your first time here, welcome. We are kicking off a brand new sermon series. So this is a great day to join us. We're calling it Let's Try This Again. And I'm really excited about this particular series for a number of reasons. First, I think this series, my hope is at least, it's going to be beneficial to all of you. But I think there's going to be some of you particularly that will benefit from what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. And what's different about this sermon series, because we always do sermon series, but this one, every single week is going to build on itself. And it's going to be a one long journey for the next couple of weeks that starts today. And the, the best way that I can kind of describe what we're going to be talking about is your faith. Very simply, your, your faith. Because every single one of us has some kind of of faith. And, and all of our faiths, if you think about it, had a starting point. They, they began at some point, at some time in the distance. Maybe, maybe it was a parent began to pour into you. And, and we all have different faiths. I mean, many of us grew up Christian. Some of us grew up Muslim. Some of us grew up Hindu. Some of us grew up Jewish. Some of us grew up with no religion whatsoever. But when you think about it, it all had a starting point somewhere in the past. And I could speak for Christians, and for those of you who kind of grew up Christian, you know that we were sort of taught a couple of what I'll call key tenets or, or beliefs or sort of core foundational things. We were taught, number one, that God is good. God is good. And, and a lot of us sort of had that, that food prayer we were all doing. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for his food. And then you kind of, you know, ad-lib from then on, depending on what you would learn. And we've got a friend um, who has a kid who's six years old. She's cute. She prays this prayer, and whenever we're kind of together as a family, we say, hey, why don't you, why don't you pray for us? And it's just amazing watching a little six-year-old pray for a group of adults. Um, what's not so awesome is she makes us hold hands, and I always get stuck holding my buddy's hand, which is just, you know, I'm awkward, and that's just whatever. But, you know, these things that we do for Jesus, right? We live to serve, and so if I got to hold his hand, I got to hold his hand. We were also taught that God punishes evil and rewards good, and depending on what kind of church you grew up in, they may have used this to say, well, you better be a good little boy or girl or else, right? We'll scare the you-know-what out of you to keep you in line because God punishes evil, so you better be good. And lastly, we were taught that God answers prayer, that you can, you can speak to God no matter where you are, and he will hear you. Now, when we're talking about learning about God, and we'll use this list as how we learned about God as kids. We kind of learned about God at the very same time that we learned about Santa. The bumper kind of referenced that. But as we got older, as we became teenagers and 20s and 30s, our concept of Santa Claus evolved, to put it like that. But many times our concept of God didn't evolve. And, and as we became adults, we were sort of left with a, a childhood faith that didn't really stand up to the pressures and the tensions of the, of the adult world because you walk around and you say, well, you know, I was told that God is good, but I see a lot of bad stuff happening in this world. I mean, even this hurricane, it's, like I, it's hard to reconcile this idea of a good God with all these bad things happening. I just, that doesn't seem to make sense for me sometimes. Or, or, or you know, I was told that God punishes evil. 
and rewards good. But when I look around, it seems like there's a lot of evil people prospering and a lot of really, really good people that are, that are struggling. And I'm having a hard time reconciling that. Or I was told that God answers prayer, and I used to believe that. But, you know, I prayed and I prayed and I, I prayed for my loved one, and they, and they still got sick and, and they died. And as we get older, sort of the, the, the tensions of adulthood begin to chip away at our faith and chip away and chip away and chip away. And for some of us, it chipped it away to nothing at all. And, and, and now we're sort of, well, I don't even know where I am anymore with this whole faith thing that I once had. Now, it's not that these things aren't true. These things are true. See, I believe that for a lot of us, many of us are dealing with a faith that is not fully formed. We're dealing with a faith that's not really fully formed, and it's hard for us to know that because our faith is our faith, and it's, it's sort of all we know, and we can look at what other people are doing, but we only know what we have. And I was trying to think of what a good analogy is for a, a faith that's not fully formed, and it reminded me of Ikea furniture. Okay, have you ever been to Ikea? First of all, if you can get out of Ikea without getting a divorce from your spouse, that in and of itself is a miracle, okay? But you go to Ikea, it's nothing about the furniture, and you'll see where I'm going in a second. You go to Ikea, you say, you know what, we need a new dresser. Get the dresser. You go home. Now you've got to put this thing together, and there's like a thousand pieces, okay? You put it together, and hey, look, it looks like a dresser, but I got a lot of screws left over. <laughs> you get that manual that comes in like 40 million different languages, and it says nothing about spare parts, and you go, oh, this is a problem, Okay, but it looks like a dresser, and, you know, you could put your clothes in it. The drawers are a little wonky, all right, but it works, and God forbid you put anything heavy on top of that dresser because it's just going to collapse, but it looks like a dresser. And a lot of times, for a lot of us, we've got Ikea furniture faith, okay? It just, it looks like faith, but there's just some screws that are not in there, and it's like, it's just, it's not holding up to the pressures of adulthood, and I've seen this more times than I'd like to see, even in this own church. I see folks, you know, they've tried their best, they, you know, their, their parents at their church or whatever the case may be, they've cobbled together some kind of faith, but it's not fully formed and they don't know it. For some reason, they're struggling with doubts and they've got all these, the, the, these problems that they can't figure out in life. And I've seen so many really, really good people, some great Christians, even begin to question their own salvation and their relationship with God. Because they're dealing with a faith that is just not fully formed. And so what I want to do over the next couple of weeks is just ask the question, what would it look like if we were to rebuild our faith as adults? Just sort of say, you know what, fit the reset, right? Let's, let's try this whole Christianity thing again. And, and all I want to do over the next couple of weeks is to sort of reinstall the operating system of Christianity, if you will. Just kind of, just kind of start from the beginning, because I want everybody, at least at this church, to have a firm foundation, to have a faith that will not only withstand the pressures of adulthood, but a faith that will thrive, and, and you will have victory in, in your Christian faith. So to kick off week one, since this kind of all builds on each other, we'll take it a little easier today, but what I wanted to do is I wanted to ask the question, what if we knew nothing at all, where would we start? You didn't know about Jesus? You had no clue about the Bible. You, had no, you have no idea about Christianity, right? If we're saying that we're going to wipe the slate clean and start fresh, where would you start if you knew nothing at all? And I want to, have a, I want to look at a conversation that takes place between Paul, this guy Paul, um, and a group of people, brilliant people, who have never heard about Jesus before in their life. 
have no idea about, about the New Testament or, or the Bible, so to speak. And I want to take a look at how Paul approaches that conversation. Now, what we're going to see takes place about 20 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus. And just so you know, if you're unfamiliar with Paul, because we're starting from scratch, Paul used to be Jewish. In fact, in Paul's prior life before he became a Christian, Paul hated Christians. In fact, his, his sole job in life was to exterminate Christianity, to persecute them, to jail them, to kill them if possible. And then one day, he had an amazing interaction with the resurrected Jesus, and his life was changed. And he became a Christian. And he started churches all over the uh, Mediterranean, and he wrote over half of the New Testament. Now, today's story takes place in Athens. Let me show you a map. So Athens is in Greece. It's kind of like right in the little claw thing here. And Paul is from Israel. And Paul would either sail or walk around the Mediterranean um, starting these churches. And today he finds himself in Athens. And that's where the story picks up. It says this. While Paul was waiting for them, his buddies, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is describing what Paul sees. He calls it idols. But what Paul is looking at are statues, right? Because he's in Greece, and in, as you guys may or may not know, Greece is big time into their gods. There's Zeus, and there's Poseidon, and there's Ares, and there's all these ones. And so Paul is walking around, and he's seeing all of these statues to the Greek gods, and he's, and he's seeing temples. Now, the other thing you have to realize is that Athens is ground zero for philosophy. You know, there's two major, um, what's called cities in Greece. There's Sparta, that's the warriors, and there's Athens, that's the academics. So he is in the home of academia itself, the smartest, most brilliant culture of, 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 of that time. He is there. And it says, so he reasoned, meaning he dialogued, he had a discourse. He was talking with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. That's a term for folks who weren't born Jewish, but then became Jewish, as well as in the marketplace, day-to-day with those who happened to be there. So he's just out and about. He's talking to people about religion. This is not weird. It's Athens. They loved talking about all the new things, all the new religions, all the new philosophies. So what he's doing is not unusual. And it says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. So let's pause here because these are the main characters of the story today. Let me talk to you really briefly about who these guys are, and I'm giving you just a Reader's Digest. You can Google it later if you want more. Essentially, the Epicureans believed that life was all about sort of scratching that itch, okay? Whatever desire you have, whatever need that is, if it's more wine, drink more wine. If it's more you-know-what, do more of that. Whatever it is in your life that you need to do, that is the meaning of life. So fulfill that desire, fulfill that need at whatever cost. And the Stoics, you've heard that word before. That's a word that we use in English. We kind of say, oh, that guy was very Stoic, kind of serious. The Stoics believed that you could control every aspect of your life. If you worked hard enough, you could figure out life. And so Paul is now debating with these two groups. And we get an insight as to how they were responding to what he was saying. It said this. Pull it up for him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Right? What is, this, what is this babble? Others remarked, well, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. Now, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So let's kind of stop here because this sets up what we're going to be talking about today. Paul's teaching this group of people about Jesus. He's talking to them about 
the resurrection. Now, when you think, for the Christians in the room at least, when you think back to how your faith journey began, whether it was a, a pastor, or was it Sunday school, a parent, a grandparent, when they began to teach you about your Christian faith, most of us learned our faith through one phrase, the Bible says. You ask the question, well, you know, the Bible says. Well, John, you know, the Bible says. Well, you know, the Bible says. The Bible says. This is how most, of, and it's how we do it here. Most of us have learned our faith through the phrase, the Bible says. But Paul, in this scenario, can't say the Bible says. Because there's no Bible yet. It has not been written yet. Now, there's, there's the Old Testament, but, but the Greeks don't really care about the Old Testament. They've got no relationship with that at all. The New Testament has not been written yet. Paul, who's one of the earliest writers, maybe just maybe at this point, 20 years after Jesus, has started to write it, but maybe just maybe. The Gospels are not written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not written yet. So he can't say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Would you turn to the, the book of Matthew real quick? I, this is a good verse that you need to. He couldn't do that. So everything that Paul is teaching to the Stoics and the Epicureans comes from what he's seen and who he knows. Now, maybe you're here today, and maybe you've heard the name of Jesus, but you don't really know anything about Jesus at all. Maybe somebody dragged you here, right? And maybe you really know nothing about Christianity. Maybe you've heard of the Old Testament and the New Testament, but, like, it's kind of meaningless to you. And so for me now to try to restart your faith by saying the Bible says, that might not work for you. And so maybe you might benefit from seeing how Paul talked to a group of people who knew nothing about Jesus before he could say, the Bible says. It says this. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting place of the Areopagus, where they said to him, all right, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? And so this Areopagus, I got a picture of it for you. Here's an actual picture of the Areopagus. It's a rock outcropping in Athens, and Areopagus literally means Ares rock, the rock of Ares. Greek tradition holds that um, the gods held a trial on this rock because they believed that Ares murdered the son of Poseidon and that trial took place on this rock. And so now this rock has essentially become a courtroom in Athens. And they would do criminal trials on the Areopagus, but they would also put on trial new religious concepts. And so what we're about to read is the very first time that Jesus and God, for that matter, are on trial in Greece, to see if they can be entered into the Greek pantheon of gods. So these philosophers look at Paul and they said, all right, you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Now, for my money, I think this is actually one of the coolest verses in the Bible, because what you're seeing here is historic documentation about when one of the most brilliant cultures, the most brilliant civilizations in human history, the Athenians, the scholars, the philosophers, the very first time ever that they're learning about Jesus Christ. And it's all brand new to them. They've never heard his name before, right? They've never read the Bible because the Bible hasn't been compiled yet. It wouldn't be for another 300 years. It's all brand new. So how would Paul begin? What would he say to these people to teach them about Jesus and God? Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, which they were. 
4. As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So, so that you have an idea of what he's talking about. I have a picture of what this altar would have looked like. Here it is. Um, archaeologists actually found in Rome this altar to the unknown God. So clearly at the same point, the Romans and the Greeks were doing the same thing where they were creating this altar to the unknown God. And so Paul's walking around Athens. He's seeing the statues. He's seeing the idols. He's seeing the temples, right? And he sees this thing that, that, that to an unknown God that just in case this God shows up. Oh, here we go. Okay? Because God forbid one other God shows up and goes, hey, where's, you know, where's my altar? They go, well, here it is. We didn't, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't know your name, but, but this is yours. Sorry about that. But it's here. When Paul sees this, it makes him realize something. That the Greeks had uncertainty. The Greeks had uncertainty. That they knew a lot, but when it came to gods and when it comes to religion, there was uncertainty in their lives. And isn't that really the case for all religions? There's just uncertainty. I mean, even Christianity. There's some things that we know, and there's some things that we just, we just don't know and may never know. And I think we kind of look at the altar to the unknown God and we kind of giggle. We're like, oh, that's, you know, that's childish, you know. But don't we kind of do the same thing in a way? I mean, let's put us all in the same boat. I don't know what it was like growing up for you, but I know a lot of us were kind of like, mm, this whole Christianity thing, I just don't know. But, you know, just in case, we better go to church on Christmas and Easter, right? I, don't, I know for sure, but like, just in case, let's go on Christmas and Easter, and we'll, we'll go fast. We'll go up. We'll show up. We'll make, you know, we'll, we'll put our, what, they're doing the same thing we're doing. We're all guilty of this just in case kind of a thing. And so Paul kind of begins to dig in on this God, and he goes, this God, whom you worship without knowing, the unknown God, is the one that I'm telling you about. Now, I think this is a brilliant connection that he's just made. Because he sees these Athenians, he sees that they're searching, he sees that they've got some idea that there's a God out there that they don't know yet, but they're searching. And he goes to them and he goes, I'm not really talking to you about a foreign God. I mean, you've, you've found him, at least kind of. I'm just going to fill you in on the details. And it's the details of where this story starts to get interesting. Because remember, they know nothing. And Paul is now going to help the Athenians understand who God is and who Jesus is. So he dives right in. He, this unknown God, is the God who made the world and everything in it. And since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. He's like, guys, look, here's the deal. I know you all love your temples and your statues and they're beautiful. It's not for him. Okay? It's, it's nice that you made <clears throat> this altar. That's not going to work for him. The unknown God is so big and so great that he can't be contained in any kind of sculpture, in any kind of temple at all. He goes, in fact, human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He, he's so big that he is perfect and complete, and there's nothing that we can do as humans to bring anything to him. Now, he may use us, but he doesn't need us because he's absolutely perfect. He says he himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. Now, this is interesting what Paul's doing right here in this verse. Because Paul is using concepts that the Greeks would understand, but he's changing their meanings just a little bit. So the Greeks knew 
that everything that they had, life, breath, everything, came from the divine. They understood that. So what Paul's saying here makes sense to them. But they believed it came from various gods. God of fertility, God of war, God of this, God of that. But they understood that it came from the divine. And Paul is saying, just one change, everything comes from one God. And it's the unknown God. And he says, in fact, this unknown God satisfies every need that you have. Now, I never saw this until this week, and I think it's because I was spending time studying the Epicureans. But I actually think in this moment, Paul is speaking right to the Epicureans. He's saying, I know that you guys have a philosophy all about meeting your own desires and needs. Whatever it is, you're going to do it. More wine, drink more wine. More love, make more love. But I'm letting you know that the unknown God can fulfill and can satisfy every single need that you have. And then Paul begins to dive into the creation of the world. He says, from one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. This is a game changer for the Greeks, because the Greeks had a concept of regional gods. There were the Greek gods, there were the Roman gods, there were the Persian gods, there were the Egyptian gods. Paul is saying, look, this unknown God that I'm talking to you about, he's not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the entire world. And in fact, he laid out the boundaries of every single one of the countries out there. And it's because of him that you are so powerful. And it's also because of him when you might fall. And he says, I can tell you his purpose. God's purpose was for the nations to seek after him and perhaps feel their way toward him, though he's not far from any one of us. And so what he's saying is that we as humans, we were created with one purpose, to seek after God. And I think he would kind of go to the altar of the unknown God, and he would say, the fact that you made this altar to an unknown God tells me that you're doing exactly what he created you to do. You're seeking after him. You don't have all the details ready, but, but, you're, but you're seeking after him. And then Paul does something amazing. To try to bridge the gap between the unknown God and a group of folks who know nothing about him, he doesn't dive into the Old Testament because Paul knew it very, very well. He doesn't do that because what's the Old Testament of the Greeks? It's, it's, it's meaningless to them at this point. Instead, he does something amazing. He reaches into their own culture and he quotes one of their own poets to them. And he says this, and this is the poet. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, here's why this is so cool. Paul in this moment is quoting a poem called Phenomena. It's written by a Greek philosopher named Erastus, who is a Stoic. So everybody in that room would have known this poem. And he's saying, guys, your own poets are halfway there. They are on the right track. Now, let me just say this. If Paul were to do this today in many churches in America, he'd get angry emails. Because how dare you, how dare you, Paul, talk about something secular in God's house? How dare you use something secular to talk about God 
Almighty. But what Paul is doing here is what we do in this church and what churches all across this nation and internationally do when we say, you know what, we're going to use a pop song to drill down a point in the sermon. Because everybody in this world is made in the image of God, and guess what? Sometimes they got it right. And so if that song or that reference or this poet is going to help bridge that gap between God and some culture, we're going to do it. And so if you get mad at a church for using a pop song, that's your prerogative. I would just ask you this. Would you write an angry email to Paul? Probably not. So he says, based on your own poet, therefore, since we are God's offspring, as Erastus said, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. He goes, guys... You can't create an image of this God. You can't create an idol of this God. We don't even know what he looks like, okay? He's a spirit, but you can't even try, even though you have. And then he says something interesting. In the past, God has overlooked such ignorance. Now, this might be the first time that Paul is teaching on this concept, but he lands on it again in the book of Romans. Let me kind of explain, because this is interesting what he's saying to these guys. He's saying, in the past, there was a time perhaps thousands and thousands of years, that God would allow humans to create idols, to to sort of create other religions and and statues and to try to figure out the universe and figure out the divine. He let all of that go for a while because he had not revealed himself to anybody but the Jewish people. But now, and this Greek word now means like right now, as we're talking in this instance, in our lifetime, sort of like, because I have now told you, because you've heard me, uh, you know, mention the name of God, because you heard me mention the name of Jesus, because you know those names now, but now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. So let's talk about this word repent for a second. Because in a church setting, in a Christian setting, when we hear the word repent, we think of sin. Now, the Greek word repent is metanoia, doesn't matter to you, but the word picture of metanoia, repent, is this idea of walking in one direction, shifting directions, and walking away. And so when you repent of sin, you walk away from your sin, and you go in an opposite direction. But you guys are smart people, and you've noticed that up until this point, Paul has not mentioned sin at all, not once. And if you go and you research and you find out what other theologians are saying, they believe that in this moment, Paul is not talking about sin. What Paul is talking about here is this idea that he's challenging the Athenians to repent, to metanoia, to walk away from the idea of having many gods, to beginning to embrace the idea of this one God, the unknown God. And they're hearing and they go, what do I need to repent of? Why do I need to repent of this idea of many to one? Why do I need to repent of this idea of there's many ways to heaven, not just one? Why do I need to repent of the idea of my way to his way? Paul says you need to repent for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man, that's Jesus, he has appointed. And he doesn't say the name of Jesus because they know He's talking about Jesus. That is why they are there. They have Jesus on trial. And he's saying, you need to repent because the unknown God has chosen a man who is righteous and just to judge the entire world, and he has every single one of your futures in his hands. Now, he would say, why can you believe 
what I've just said. Why should you believe it? Because he has given proof of this to everyone. Now, philosophers are smart. Guys are going, wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. stop. You can't have proof with religion. It's not, I mean, that's why we have, the, there's uncertainty. There's no proof. It's religion. That's why we got the unknown God. You, you, you can't have proof. Here's why God, the Father, gave us proof. Because proof moves us from hope so to no so. Okay? Hope so is religion. Hope so is, well, I don't know if this whole Christianity thing is real, but I, I hope so. You know, so I'll go to church, you know, a couple times. I, I hope it's real. To know so, which is certainty and confidence. To know that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Okay, Paul, they would say, what's your proof? Right? We'd love to see. What's your proof? He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul says, I didn't read about this in some book. That book's not written yet. Okay? I didn't get this because I just talked to some guy who knew a guy who dated a girl whose manager's in a band who saw this thing. Okay? It's not. No. He goes, you have to understand that right over there, right in Israel, right across the water, there are 500 people. 500 people. There are 500 witnesses, eyewitnesses that saw this happen. I talked to them. I, I, I know people that end. I myself saw the resurrected Jesus, and it changed my life. And that's why I'm here today talking to you guys. Listen, I could be back home sipping champagne coolies, all right? But I got to be here because I saw this thing, and I got to tell everybody that I saw this thing. And you got to understand what I'm saying. When Paul gets finished with this amazing, amazing speech, the next line is tremendous. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, the Athenians fell to their knees. Some began to destroy the statues of the city's gods. I mean, what, what a powerful, I mean, Paul goes in there. What a victory for Paul. Except this didn't happen. I made this up. But you guys read the Bible. You know that. Okay? Here's the deal. Here's why I made this up. Because if you're a person who believes that Christianity is fake, if you're a person that believes that a bunch of men 2,000 years ago got together and said, how do we concoct something, okay, that we can enslave people with this religion, all right, get them to believe about this Jesus guy, right, this is what they would have written. Where one of their own, some Hebrew guy, went into the most brilliant culture of the ancient civilizations, talked about Jesus, they fell on their faces, and they worshiped. This is what you would write. But here's what actually happened. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Because that's a real reaction. That's a real conversation with real people in a real city in a real time. Because there are people that will hear the truth of Jesus Christ and they're going to sneer. And the philosophers heard this and they go, ah, oh, come on, Paul, are you kidding me? Right? Are you wasting my time? Listen, listen. I know we're smart guys, all right? I know there's some things that we don't know for certain, okay? But here's what I do know for certain. When you're dead, you're dead, okay? When you're dead, you're dead. So don't, don't, no. This is not, no, okay? With the resurrection, stop, okay? You're embarrassing yourself. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Basically, Paul, are you serious? Did you, you really, you know, you saw and you know, did this, did this really happen? Are there really, I, and he goes, yeah, yeah, this really happened. 
In our generation, the God of the universe has done something amazing just over there, and he has given us proof. He has given us proof that he knows us, he loves us, and that we can know him. And in this whole account, in this whole conversation, Paul does something very, very amazing. He shows us that the starting point of our faith, if we're trying to wipe the slate clean and reinstall it, the starting point of our faith is not the Bible says, because the Bible wasn't written yet. The foundation of our faith is a question. And people in this room have a lot of questions. You got a lot of questions about Christianity. You got a lot of questions about the Bible. You got a lot of questions that are plaguing your mind and are preventing you from saying yes to Jesus. But let me tell you something. The question that is the foundation of our faith is not, was the world created in seven literal days? Not interested. You can talk about that over brunch if you want, okay? The question of our faith is not whether Noah really built an ark and whether there were really all the animals on it. And do you really want me to believe there's dinosaurs on there? That's not the question. The question is at the core of everything that we hold dear as Christians is, who is Jesus? This is the question that you need to answer if you want to restart your faith. Because when Paul had the opportunity to speak to a group of people who knew nothing about Jesus, who knew nothing about Christianity, it wasn't even called Christianity at that point, it was called the way, had no concept of the New Testament because it wasn't written yet. He went directly to the fact that there is a God who sent a man who came back to life. That there is a God who cares. That there is a God who revealed himself. And he sent a man, his son, who is Lord and Savior of this world. And that is the foundation of Christianity. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it's your first time here at DHC, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure that you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. And so since it's just week one, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm dying, uh, since it's week one of this series, okay, I just want to give you two questions. Two questions, just in case I don't make it the next week. <clears throat> two questions. <laughs> <clears throat> Gosh, she's sick. I'm getting it, okay? Two questions that I want you to just marinate on this week. You can, you can talk amongst yourselves. You can go out with friends. You can go out with your family. Or you can just keep it to yourself. But I think if you can begin to work your way through these questions, it will be beneficial for you as we get into next week and the week after that and the week after that. So the first one is this. How and when did your faith story begin? I don't mean just your, your Christian faith story. I mean, maybe you're of a different religion. Maybe you're here investigating it. Maybe you, maybe you don't have a religion at all. How did all that start for you? Who was instrumental in those original conversations? How old were you? What was it like? Was it a school? Was it a church? Was it a mosque? Was it a temple, a synagogue? What, what, what did that look like for you? And secondly, how well has your faith held up under the pressures of adult life? Have you found that your childhood faith is supporting you? Or have you found that you are now trying to support your childhood faith? That you are just trying to keep it 
from collapsing. And you're patching it up and, and, and you're, you're, just, you're propping it up and you're doing whatever you can to keep that childhood faith together. And most importantly, I want you to begin to answer, maybe even for the very first time, who is Jesus to you? Because this man and this question is going to be the basis if we're going to build a firm foundation that can not only withstand adulthood, but that will thrive. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we could come here today. <clears throat> Lord, as we close out the day, I just want to echo Adam's prayer and, and just thank you for what you, you've done in the life of the Long family. And there is a long road ahead, not just for them, but for that entire island. Years, Lord, of rebuilding. And I pray, Lord, that you are there in a mighty and a powerful way. But for us, you've kept us safe. And we are here today. And I pray, Lord, that if there's someone in this room today who's had a rough go at Christianity, if there's someone here today who's investigating the claims of Jesus, if, if there's someone here today whose childhood faith has not supported them and they're struggling, Lord, I just, you know what? I just pray that every single one of us, no matter where we are on the faith spectrum, I pray that today we can have a fresh beginning. Lord, I, I just want to invite you into this series, that you would be a part of this and that perhaps you may spark something inside of us that would reignite our faith and perhaps ignite a faith in your son Jesus for the very first time. Lord, everyone's got something going on in their life. And Lord, you do answer prayer. But sometimes it feels like we're praying and praying and praying and praying and, and, and we're not hearing from you. I pray that today, Lord, you would meet people at the place of their need. You know what's going on in their life. And I pray that today, Lord, would be a turning point in their life. That they would feel you in a mighty, powerful, and personal way. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.